Well, good morning, everybody. I am so grateful I've gotten to be with you these last few weeks. I was telling Jonathan beforehand, I often come to the discipleship school or come during the middle of the week, but to get to be with y'all on Sunday morning has been a real privilege to get to be a part of this family and just really enjoy this. And uh, like Billy said, hope I get to come back and hang out some more uh, Sunday mornings with you in the future. And so I thought I would just launch this morning by asking each of you a question. And here's what it is. If you had a limited time to create a spiritual boat wake behind you, what would your strategy be? What would your strategy be? Okay, like in other words, starting right now, if you are personally responsible to create a spiritual ripple effect that's going to ensure that the message of Jesus and his kingdom continues and multiplies in your city and beyond long after you, what would your strategy be for that? All right? So just kind of get your brain on and get thinking and figure out what that would be, all right? So, and I love what we were sharing earlier as the guys were up here talking about uh, what they're doing overseas um, and the works that are around the world. Kind of my job, just so you know, is I kind of serve the 47 churches that are in America. And so we do that so that we can send people uh, overseas and do all kinds of great work. And so it's been a privilege to be able to, to do that. And I do that from serving in Waco, Texas. That's where I'm from. And that's the church where I uh, get to help be a part of and lead while I was there. But I also grew up in Waco, okay? Way before Waco, became cool with Magnolia and other stuff. I actually grew up there and liked it before all of that. <clears throat> all the <laughs> tourists coming just screwed everything up, but we still, we're, you know, we love Waco. And I'm actually old as well. I'm 48 years old. So really old for most, for this room, that's old. And so like, I mean, like for, and I just want to say, because I'm old and I've been around church a long time, church today is different than church 35 years ago. All right. Anybody here that older than 35 that would know, know that? Like 12 of you? Great. And so you guys might be able to connect to this because when I grew up, there's basically, there were basically like three levels of Christianity, okay? Level one was you went to church on Sunday morning if you loved God, okay? But that was like just level one, all right? Level two was the real Christians went back on Sunday night for night church, okay? And I'm seeing some head nods back there. You remember that? Poor preacher had to come up with another message, you know, by that night, okay? But, that, but if you were there, you were one of the real Christians. You know, you didn't just do the Sunday morning thing, all right? But then there was a level reserved for the highest of the highs, the saints of the saints. These are the Mother Teresas and the John the Baptist of the church. They went to choir practice on Sunday afternoon, all right? This was like where it really was at. And, and, and our church, our choir director, he won Dove Awards for his musicals and choral arrangements. He was like stellar. So you didn't miss choir practice on Sunday afternoon while everybody else was watching the Cowboys. You were at choir practice. And I'll never forget when he announced that we were going to be taking, um, we were going to be doing a musical. We we're going to work on it all nine months of the school year. And then we were going to be taking it outside the four walls of the church, right? Because that's what the church does. We take our squeaky voices and choreography. We go outside the four walls of the church to bring our musical to the world and to change the world. And so, um, and we were going to be doing a 50s theme musical. We were really excited. This meant everybody's pulling out their leather jackets and their poodle skirts, and we were not going to be singing that secular music of Let's Go to the Hop. We were going to change it to Let's Go to the Rock. And I'm telling you, I mean, it was going to be fantastic. And uh, I... 
was sure that this was going to incite the next revival, the great, next great awakening in America. And um, we worked our tails off on that. I looked everywhere for a picture of me in high school doing this. I couldn't find it, so I just found a picture of me in high school. So just picture that guy right there with those enormous shoulder pads. Uh, picture that guy in a leather jacket trying to, uh, you know, incite revival through his 50s moves, okay? So... We did. We took it everywhere. We took it to an AA meeting. We took our musical to an AA meeting. We all know that former addicts need to see 14-year-olds um, singing and dancing in order to retain their freedom. I'm sure they were just so impacted by that song, by the song and dance. Um, then we went to an urban neighborhoods all throughout Florida. I guess they wanted to see 60 white kids acting like Fonzie from Happy Days in order to find God. I mean, it's like, you know, like this is what we did. Then we come back to our church and we did it at our church. And it's a packed house. And I mean, we go all in. And I even had this like Elvis move I had to do in the middle because yours truly, of course, was the lead of the musical, right? And so like I had to come up to the front and kind of do this like Bobby Dooby Doobop thing, you know? And, and I was like, Lord, when I do that, let your glory come, you know? Like, let your glory fill this house. And uh, they give me the mic at the end and I like preach to everybody there. I bring the, the youth to the front. We're the ministry team. And I'm like, if you want Jesus, if you want God, you just come to the front. And I mean, zero people came to the front. No one, I mean, I guess Elvis calling people to ministry time was not having the effect I thought it was gonna have. And it was over. And they were all high-fiving us. And we walked out the door and the next week, it vanished. I mean, there was no signs of anyone had done a musical at our church. And I just was like, wow, that came and went. Nine months of work, traveled around the country, and it was gone. Now, I wasn't the only one that had this. My wife's from Georgia. They had the three levels of Christianity in Georgia as well. And she did this very same thing. And she did her own choir tour to Friends or Friends Forever for you Michael W. Smith fans. And so they went around America. They even went to the San Diego Padres baseball game. And they sang the national anthem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They sang the national anthem and then later learned it was actually recorded. They lip synced the national anthem, but they were still praying if just one person gets saved while we sing the national anthem. Nobody got saved. Nobody got touched by God. Nobody was coming forward. And then the choir tour ends and, and it's over, okay? So here's what's just really interesting about it is that nobody ever stopped us to say, did y'all really think that was going to incite the next worldwide revival? We were like, well, yes, it's the third level of Christianity. I don't know what else could, could incite this kind, of, this kind of revival. Meanwhile, Jesus was not using that strategy. They, probably because they didn't have backup tracks back in the first century. But it also could be that he had a very different way to use the limited time and space that he had in order to be able to create something that would sustain far after he, the times when he was living on planet Earth. So this morning, we're gonna look at what his strategy was and see why it was so effective. As we've been doing week after week, would you stand with me? We're gonna be reading from Mark chapter three today, and we're gonna look at verse 13, 14, and 15. Just ask that you read these along with me for our time of going into the word, all right? One, two, three. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Lord, we thank you for your word. We just pray, Lord, take it deep inside of all of us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You can take a seat. 
Now, if you haven't been with us these last two weeks, like Billy said, we've been doing this series called Given. It's about discipleship, being faithful, being obedient, being committed. What does this look like for us to be disciples of Jesus and to, and to live it out? And so if you were here the first week, we talked about that in the first century, apprenticeship was just baked into the fabric of who they are. And they basically all knew that this is what you did. You wanted to be with your rabbi. You wanted to learn his teachings. You wanted to do what your rabbi did. And then you would go make disciples. This is just was very normal for first century life. Then last week we said that the, the great uh, crisis of the church today might be untransformed people. And so what we need is we need uh, not to go out there and to try harder. We need to train. We need to have practices that we put into our life so that like Luke 6 says, um, when we're fully trained, we can be like our teacher Jesus. So that's what we, where we've been these last couple of weeks. But this week we're going to talk about how do we repeat the strategy that Jesus used while he was on planet earth to create a boat wake, a spiritual ripple effect behind him that still lives to this day and proven by the fact that you're sitting in the seat that you're sitting in. And so we're gonna look at Mark 3, but before we get to the verses that we just read, I wanna back it up just a little bit because if you have a, a, a Bible with you, if you were to look above the subtitle, your subtitle probably says something like the man with a withered hand, maybe uh, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Something like that might be above Mark chapter three. So Jesus comes on the scene and in this specific story, which I love, he walks into a synagogue and he sees a man whose hand is like crumpled and he can't heal himself. And Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. And uh, some tension arises because according to the leaders of the synagogue, you're not supposed to heal anyone on the Sabbath day. And again, like we talked about last week, the, the leaders, the religious leaders at that time, they had their law, but then they created an oral law. They created like rules around the rules. So if you broke the outside rules, at least you didn't break the inside rules. And the, they were, the, these leaders are trying to inaugurate the kingdom of God today by kind of perfect moral living. And so they were like, no, you can't heal. You can't do that. And Jesus is like, that's what God does. He comes to us when we least deserve it. And so when we need it the most, and so he says, stretch out your hand. And this guy's hand just goes, boom. And it causes a scene. Can you imagine what would happen? Like if I just walked, like my daughter, Mary Kate, if I just walked into her dorm today and said, you know, get someone in a wheelchair. And I said, stand up in Jesus' name. Can you imagine the stir that might create in Callaway? Like a couple other people might come out. <laughs> Word might spread. Hey, up on the fourth floor, there's like people getting up out of wheelchairs and withered hands are getting healed. Now, again, if that were to happen, what would your strategy be? Would it be the next verse seven? Jesus withdrew. Is this making sense to anybody? Like, it's not making sense to me. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. I would assume they would. And when they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from all these different cities, Jerusalem, Judea, Idumea, regions across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon. I mean, this is revival. People are flooding him from all these towns. And because of the crowd, he tells his disciples, have a small boat ready for me to keep the crowd, the people from crowding me, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Then whenever the impure spirit saw him, these demons, they fell down before him and they would cry out, you are the son of God. I mean, you know you have a revival going when the demons are proclaiming your message for you. That's right. 
I mean, I can barely get this sermon out. I never thought I'd get demons to give it to you. I mean, like, that is when you know the kingdom of God is among you. And then what does Jesus do? How does he capitalize on that? The rest of verse 12 says, he gave strict orders not to tell others about him. Is this confusing to anybody else but me? Jesus did not go to the Bush school. Jesus needed some marketing classes. Here's what I would do. I would make sure Peter had a camera at all times. And I'd be like, watch this. We're gonna do the little hand thing. I need this. And I would make sure the camera was rolling. He would go, boom. He would capture my attention with the religious leaders when they're like, you can't heal him. Yes, you can. Don't you care about animals that fall into holes? How about people? Like I would have this whole dialogue. Did you get that? Got that. I would make friends with Jimbo Fisher, someone with a lot more followers than I do. I would make sure he posted and tags me. And then I would make sure that you post that and we would get that going and it would be an unstoppable force. And I'm not Jesus. And obviously Jesus doesn't know anything about this stuff because he keeps narrowing. He's not using our strategies. Verse 13, let's just read, go back to what we said earlier. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out To do what? Preach and have authority to drive out demons, the very things that he has been doing. So he's saying, come be with me. Now go do what I did. Invitation, 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 challenge, challenge, challenge. Go do what I've done. Again, not everybody wanted this, so not everybody stuck around. But this is where you see the heartbeat of Jesus. This is where you see the beauty of Jesus' strategy that's coming out of Jesus' heart for us. That when he could be going broad, he's pulling back to the mountains. When the demons could be sharing who he is, he's saying, not yet. And he's proclaiming, I'm not looking for fascinated masses. I'm looking for some hungry disciples. Not trying to give you your goosebumps for the day. Not trying to see if I can say a little tweetable quote that someone's gonna put today on Insta. I wanna know, Who's going to follow me around after this going, what the heck did that mean? I'm looking for that person. Who's that girl? Who's that guy? Again, this is not a 21st century strategy. So you're going to have to go to this book to study it more, to figure out how Jesus did it. If you're going to recreate it, because today our strategy typically comes down to platform and titles. When I ask people, they're making disciples. It's often, I'm not a pastor. You're making disciples. It's often, well, I'm not a life group leader. I haven't found the word pastor or life group leader in any of these verses. I don't have a platform. Can't stand up there like you can, Carl, or or I don't have many followers. I have four followers. That's called texting. You don't have any followers, really. That's just your mom and dad and sisters. That's all I've got. So I don't have a title. I don't have a platform. But see, a platform does not ensure that kingdom values are being embedded into someone else. Right? Right? Like, I mean, what we're doing right now, this is discipleship, by the way. You're being discipled through the worship, through the word, the testimonies, the, uh, the, the messages I'm giving right now. But we have no idea if you're going to go do anything with this or not. So there's no way of knowing this. So it's a version of discipleship, but it's level one. We got to get you to choir practice if we're going to experience revival, right? We got we to get more than just level one, okay? But titles also, they don't necessarily give you the character needed. Listen to this. They don't give you the character needed in order to make sure that that is reproduced. So Jesus was not looking for people who would say, amen, good word, brother. He was trying to figure out, do you actually have values inside of you that once I leave will be reproduced through generations? 
And so that's great that everybody's watching this healing and I love that man and he was worth it all. Now let's go pull away. And it just would shock everybody. That just doesn't make sense. That's not come and be blessed. That's, hey, I want you to come and see my life and then go do it. It doesn't seem like Jesus was like, okay, that's a small crowd. That wasn't a win. Bigger crowd, a little bit more win. He loves the crowds. But he's like, I want you to come and see my life. Now we're gonna go do my life. This is why we often define discipleship like this. We define discipleship as one person helping others become lifelong, obedient followers of Jesus who in turn do the same, who in turn help others become the same. This is not discipleship as one person preaching to others, hoping they like it, and that they come back and download the worship set. That's a part of it. But that is what Jesus did. That was his strategy to make sure that you're sitting in the chair you're sitting in today. Let's read this together. One, two, three. Discipleship is one person helping others become lifelong, obedient followers of Jesus who in turn help others become the same. So this is the invitation and challenge we're talking about. You remember in week one, I told you that a student wants to know what his teacher knows, but a disciple wants to become what their disciples become. That creates, that is mandated then that there is an invitation and challenge culture that we as disciples are a part of. So what I'd like to do is kind of piece together what happens when an invitation and challenge culture merges and what happens when it gets pulled apart. You ready? So here we go. If you create a culture in church, in life group, in your life, in your family, where there's high invitation, come, come see, come see, but then there's zero challenge given then you are creating a consumer culture. This is the temptation of the American church today. We want you to come and drink our coffee and we promise we won't ask you to do anything. Just come get our, your spiritual goosebumps and then sneak out the back and we won't even ask you your name. We don't see that in scripture, but that's, that's why we've created lazy, comfortable, complaining Christians. And we're all ticked off about the color of the carpet and how loud the music is a lot more than we are the people who are going to spend an eternity apart from Christ and are not living the values of Jesus in their life. That's a consumer culture. Now, we want to hear your feedback. Don't mean, that mean you can't give us feedback. We're not saying that. What we're saying is you can't consume your way into discipleship. Yeah. Now, what happens if I create a low invitation? You can't come see my life beyond, you know, the guy up here preaching. And I don't give you any challenge either. That is a boring culture. It's like, why would I come to your church service? You don't ask me to give my life for anything bigger than myself. And I don't even get to know you at all. All right? Now, our goal is not to entertain people in the church, but boring should not be the word used to describe what happens when the Spirit of God shows up in individuals and they come together. That shouldn't be the words used to describe us, right? Are you all with me here? So our prayer is that when you actually step into life groups, I've been leading life groups since about 1995. It's a long time leading life groups, okay? So I've had a lot of times to lead them, to, to be a part of them. I've often led groups I call death groups and then life groups. And people would come to me and be like, I, want to, I don't go to life group. Why not? They're boring. And I would always say the same thing. You must be a very boring person. Because life groups filled with people who have the Holy Spirit inside of them coming together to live out the ways of Jesus is anything but boring. So that's an indictment on you more than it is on the group. 
So maybe we need to do a better job of letting people see our life and then be challenged to live out the life of Jesus. What happens if you go the other way? If you, if you don't, I don't let you see my life, but I demand a lot of you. Then I create a very stressed out, discouraged culture. And this is where the list of things you have to do keeps growing, but you don't get any personal touch with the person who's calling you to that. Where, so you don't really know if what you're doing is right, but you always know when it's wrong. This is, this is you could also call this a, um, a legalistic culture. Um, in its worst form, this is where cults get started. Now, let me just pause right here because I think that if many Christians were honest, they think this is how Jesus relates to them. My 10 commandment list keeps growing. And now like the Pharisees, I'm up into the 600s of laws I have to do, but he will not really let me get to know him. So he doesn't give me access to him. He just gives me prayers to pray and things to do. And I'm a perpetual failure. This is actually, I think, the reason people are leaving churches and Christianity more than any other reason. It's because their perception of Jesus is that he keeps giving you more to do and less access to him. It's a, de- it's a deception. It's not true. But often you're deceived before you know you're deceived and you're living in this culture and you're like, I don't know, I'm not even, why am I doing this? It may be because you've missed out on that final piece. High invitation says, come and follow me and I give you an all access pass to my life. But we're also going to do something with this. You're gonna be challenged one day when there's 5,000 starving people in front of you and I'm gonna look at you and say, you feed them. And you're gonna look at me and go, the nearest town is like, forever away. We don't have any that much money. And he goes, well, what are you going to do about that? He got it. <laughs> or high invitation says, Hey, Matthew, I see you in your tax collector booth. I want you to come and be one of my followers. And Matthew turns around and he's like, you do realize I've been like ripping off your people for a long time, right? Yeah. We're actually going to come to your house for a meal today. Invite all your friends. Okay. My friends are like hookers and strippers and yeah, yeah. Bring them. Okay, they're going to look at you and you're going to be totally discredited. Great. Make sure they're at the table. If I'm one of the 12 disciples, I guess 11, and I'm sitting there with Matthew and all of these people, and I'm like, I guess then when I go make disciples, I need a Matthew in my group. Like this would be, there's no like, Peter, do you have the video camera? Is Jimbo putting this on Insta? This is, this is, I would be thinking, I guess that's what we do. And then he's going to tell me, now I want you to do this. Everybody get into pairs. You're going to go to the next town. Don't take, uh, you can't have a bag. You can't have a staff. Don't take any money with you. Uh, No bread, by the way. And I want you just to go and proclaim the kingdom of God to the next town. It's like being on a Spirit Airlines flight. You can't take anything with you and um, just walk in there like this and promise not to touch anybody or else we're going to charge you $100, okay? And then go to the next town that was good, what a player. That just kind of came out. Uh, you could tell where I, where I was this week on the Spirit of Life. And then you're going to proclaim the kingdom of God. High invitation, high challenge. That is what your Jesus is inviting you to. That's why you signed up. You needed a rescuer. You needed a savior. But he actually said, come touch me. And then he didn't say, do you feel better? Good. Sit there and just get with two friends. Feel better forever. Like, no, no, no. Let's go to the next town over and let's give it away. That's why I signed up. 
Because as the son of an alcoholic who was the oldest of five boys, feeling the responsibility to raise these guys when I'm like 10, 11, and 12 years old, and I'm feeling the weight of this, loving God, but I'm like, I always said my mom was Mother Teresa and my dad was a whiskey lover, so I always felt like I was like in love with Jesus and in love with the world. And torn in the midst of all of that, a college graduate reached out to me and said, something in me clicks with something in you. And I about broke down in tears because I couldn't believe somebody else felt that they could click with me. He's like, you want to hang out? I was like, I'd, I'd love to. He's like, what if we just started doing discipleship? I had no idea what he meant by that. And he's like, well, it just means that we'll get together every week. We'll talk about God and the Dallas Cowboys. So I was in. And he said, I'll see you this week at 6.30. I said, oh, I can't. I've got football practice. And he's like, no, I'm at 6.30 in the morning. I didn't know there was a 6.30 in the morning. But he just began to meet with me. And he was basically the same thing. Like, how's your relationship with God? What's going on inside of you? How are you feeding others? Like, that was kind of it. And are the Cowboys good or bad? That was kind of our discussion every, every week. And then eventually Sean went and he's now started five of Antioch's churches in Boston. And, and I just kind of started doing this with other teenagers and college students that I was pouring my life into. I told you earlier, I oversee 47 churches. Since you probably come from lots of church experiences. Let me tell you what I mean. What I don't mean is that 47 couples came to us asking for money to go start a church somewhere. What I mean is a girl named Lena came to Waco to Baylor. She got involved in a life group where they would just break up at the end and they would ask each other, how's your relationship with God? And how's your relationship? You know, what's going on inside of you? And you know, how are you feeding others? And then she started doing that with others. She started doing that with a girl named Nicole who's sitting on the front row here. And so that was the first time Nicole had been discipled. She came in as a Baylor student. Eventually, Lena said, this is working. Why don't I go do this in New Orleans, Louisiana? And so she and her husband helped lead the church in New Orleans. Nicole took that to South Africa, took that to England. She just began to go do this in other places. My daughter, Mary Kate, would tell you that her sophomore year of high school is kind of a tough year. But a senior in high school thought to herself, I guess I don't have to wait till I get old to make disciples. I can do that now. So she, this senior in high school started reaching out to her. Her name's Annie Dunn. Annie's serving in your kids' ministry right now. She's helping make disciples in your kids. And Annie just started meeting with her every week. We often say whether, whether Mary Kate being at A&M is to her credit or to her blame, it's probably a big piece of what's going on. Because when you meet with someone week after week, pouring into them, and then Annie came to A&M and she wasn't like, didn't see Mary Kate as a project. So she'd say, come spend a weekend with me. And Mary Kate come up and hang in her dorm, go to Midnight Yell, go to games. Saw the A&M culture. And now she's here. Now, who, and Annie's parents, you know where they met? In Turkey, serving as missionaries, trying to just give their life away to make disciples. The Antioch movement you're a part of is just people sitting together saying, how's your walk with God? What's going on inside of you? How are you feeding others? I guess this works. Let's go do this with youth. Let's go do this with college. So to be honest, we're not a group of people who are like all worship the same and preach the same. So you come to our churches if you like our music or our preaching. Odds are that you could get online right now and see better worship and hear better preaching any day of the week. So we're not trying to keep you because the next problem that sweeps through our country could wipe out worship, could wipe out preaching. It cannot wipe out small groups of people getting together to say, we want to come together as disciples of Jesus to say, how's your walk with God? What's going on inside of you? How are you feeding others? Let's go to the scriptures. Let's do it. Let's live a life of high invitation. Let's live a life of high challenge. That's what you've been invited to do. Jesus started that. Paul comes along and he decides he's going to do the same thing. And he reaches out, he and his friends go to Ephesus and they start a revival. I mean, it is like 
riot and revival. If you don't know that story, great story. And so he decides, I need a leader to fix this. And he pulls out a teenager named Timothy and Timothy starts leading it. And so there's some great verses in there. You probably memorized at one point or another about, you know, don't look down on yourself if you're young. Set an example for the believers. Speech, life, love, faith, and purity. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two. It's the last letter Paul wrote before he dies. And he says, Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to faithful people. Remember, given this series, it's about being a people who are obedient and faithful and committed. He says, entrust what, I'm giving, what I gave you, Timothy, entrust that to a few faithful people who you can trust to be able to give that to others also. So it went from Paul to Timothy to faithful people to others and others and others and others and others and others. And now you're sitting here. And just the next, the question is, is who are going to be your others? And, and, and maybe they're sitting in the kids ministry right now waiting for you to come, not be a babysitter, be a disciple maker. Maybe they're waiting for you to invite those teenagers into your homes so that you can love on them and you can be for, Car for them what someone was for Carl. To say something in me clicks with something inside of you. Someone asked me recently, like, hey, when you were a college pastor for 11 years, I know you raised up a lot of leaders. And, you know, today, is it, is it, is it the same way? Do you raise up a lot of leaders? I'm like, no, no one in college wants to lead anymore. The applause of, of leadership is gone. And I don't really care about that. What concerns me is that the applause for discipleship is gone as well. And now we're just living a life of, do you party or do you not? To what degree of bad words are you okay with? Oh, she's an F word girl. Oh, he's only a damn guy. I mean, like, that's kind of where we're at today. And no one's like, do you want to be a leader? I don't, I don't know. I don't give a care about any of that stuff. I'm asking, who is, who is getting the, 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 the place where you are taking your cup and you're just pouring it out on somebody else? And saying, hi, invitation. Come see my life. Hi, challenge. Let's go live this together. Again, this worked through the centuries. I used to study revivals. By the way, I was Googling revivals in America this week. There was an article written about revival going on on two campuses right now. Yes. Texas A&M and Auburn. Interesting. <laughs> and y'all won the football game, so I mean, I guess it's a bigger revival here. I don't know. I didn't know A&M was in revival. It's not my definition of revival, just so you know. But hey, let's just, okay, let's just get it started. Let's just, it's, we'll, we'll start with anything, right? But I used to study revivals. In the 1700s, there were a couple preachers that were revivalists. George Whitfield, John Wesley. Whitfield was by far the better preacher. If, I, if my numbers are correct, he actually preached to 10 million people. He preached over 18,000 sermons. He was a fantastic, fantastic preacher. Helped launch the great, Amer great awakening of our times. Now, there was John, he would just go town to town. Wesley comes along, and he was a good preacher. He wasn't great, he was good. And he didn't move as fast as Whitfield, so he did not preach to as many. Some even said they were rivals. Whitfield didn't really care for Wesley. Really didn't care for his methods either. At the end of Whitfield's life, after all he had done, he was being asked to reflect back. And he was thinking about Wesley because what Wesley would do is he didn't move as fast. The reason is, is when people get saved at his meetings, he would gather them together and start spending time with them. He would group them into what we call life groups. He calls society, he called societies. And so by the time that Whitfield hit 1700s, 
City 3, City 4, that's when Wesley was moving on to City 2. Listen to what Whitfield said about Wesley at the end of his life. He said, my brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined in societies and thus preserved the fruit of his labor. This I neglected. And my people are a rope of sand. And that last sentence hit me. Lord, I want to bless a lot of people here. But with my limited time, and I'm not against social media, and I'm not against any kind of other platform. I think we can use everything to get the gospel out. But what will my primary investment be? It might need to be the very thing Jesus did to pull away with a few people and go to the deeper place and then go live the deeper life. There's a way that we do this here at Antioch College Station. If you're wondering, how does Antioch College Station do discipleship? We kind of see this four different ways. And I want you to get this. And I want you to see the very first way we do this. We do this through peer-to-peer relationships. We do this where it's just like a couple people that are often your same age. Maybe they're a little older, a little younger. But often it's peer-to-peer. It's where you're getting together in coffee shops or living rooms. You're sitting in, your, in, in dorm rooms or in your business at and, and lunchtime. And just peers are sitting together saying, let's sharpen one another. And let's ask each other about our relationship with God. Let's read the Bible. Let's do the Bible. Let's, this is peer-to-peer relationship. If you don't know this, I've had people sit in these kind of relationships for five years and say, no one's discipled me. But they don't realize they're doing discipleship. It could be at the end of your life group if you break into guys and girls as long as there's actually time allotted to actually go there. But it might be that it requires that Friday morning breakfast that you're gonna do together. Some of you didn't know there's a 6.30 a.m., but you might need to find it, okay, just like Carl did. Then there's also mentoring, and this is probably more organic. This is like, hmm, I'm having a baby. She looks like she's got three kids running around. I'll go to her. Could you meet with me for a few weeks? I'll come to your house with questions, and you get you get mentored. There's no program for this, but you get to pursue it. Or maybe you feel out of compassion for someone else. They're starting a business. That's how I got started. Why don't I help them learn how to be a godly person who starts businesses? This is more organic, but that's a way that discipleship happens. We also have intensives and initiatives that we do. Oh, is that the third one that we have there? Okay, great. Let's do that one. Evangelistic. This is what this is what Jesus did when he called Matthew from out, from out behind the tax collector booth. There was someone there that he, could, he, he pulled in that was not a, an a, avid Christ follower and pulled him into his circle. This takes a lot of intentionality, especially as you're a pastor. That's why I joined a gym for years because everybody at my church staff was saved. So I was gonna have to not, they're like, who did you reach out to? Well, my assistant's been following God since she was born. Like I, I needed someone else. So going to the gym, reaching out to my coach, leading him to Jesus was a big piece of that. Finally, intensive. This is like what this is what we, when we do our Antioch Discipleship School here. Is that what you call it, Discipleship School? The Antioch Discipleship School. I know some of you guys are in that. I'll be back next month sharing with some of you guys. And this is an intensive. It's a short amount of time, or it might be what you're going to do this summer when you go overseas for two weeks. It's a, it's a short amount of time, but it crams in the kingdom of God into your soul into that time. And there's there's different ways. And usually, the stuff on the left is the stuff we should always be doing. The stuff on the right. Happens at different times based on the need of the hour. But this is the way we see discipleship happening. And it's an invitation. I really want to go back to that first piece, the peer-to-peer 
relationships. This is Proverbs 27, 17. I bet if you've been a, a Christian for a while, you've heard this verse before. But Pro- Proverbs 27, 17 says this, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Very simple. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. This is where you're sitting with one, two, three, four. If you're a freshman, there could be a group of like 12. I've done that too. Where you're just, because you all go in mobs everywhere. It's how you know that they're freshmen. They're like You're just like, wow, they're all coming. There's 40 of them, all right? That's how you know. It could be that big of a group. You're, you're breaking it down and you're like, I've got my iron. I'm looking around to see who else has some iron that wants to sharpen one another. In the first part of your spiritual journey, especially as a college student, it'll be, which church do I connect to? And that's a challenge because of the church you grew up in and you're evaluating, and that's a challenge. But if you find yourself, your junior year's still there, you need to just hunker down somewhere and go, I've got iron, they've got iron. They read the Bible, I read the Bible. So why don't we just start sharpening one another? This is where you start to make that commitment and say, I wanna be someone who is making disciples. And so the question and the challenge I have for you in the limited time, that you have, whether you're in college or the limited time we have on this planet, is how could we emulate the strategy of Jesus to say, I will be a piece of iron for someone else. And it might be that my first step is to step into life group. It might be that my first step is to initiate with someone else. Hey, can we get together? It's a very simple step, but a challenging step nonetheless. Again, I talked about this guy, Sean, that reached out to me, but another great impact is that I mentioned my dad's an alcoholic, but I want to bring it full circle because my dad just went in and out of alcoholism for years, finding God, finding addiction, finding God, finding addiction. And I would always say, why don't you go to a life group? And he's like, because life groups are stupid. And I was like, well, that, that guy's a good leader. And he's like, I don't want to, I mean, what's he going to teach me? And I'm like, maybe he's like not how to be drunk. I don't know. Like, I was just like, there's got to be something here that we could do. I'll never, and my dad, my mom was a cook. So my dad didn't cook anything in his life. I'll never forget walking in the kitchen one day and he was making a salad. I didn't know he knew how to do that. I mean, it's like, I guess it was just like tomatoes and lettuce, but I was like, wow, what's that for? He's like, life group. Like, you're going to life group? And he was like, yeah. I was like, why? God told me to. I was like, well, thank you. Just, we needed God to show up to Moses and give him the 10 commandments. We needed God to tell you to take a salad. One day they asked me to come lead worship for that life group and I did and I, I was sitting around and I was like, this is all people who are like gambling addicts, sex addicts, drug addicts, alcoholics. It's the most beautiful group of people ever. There is, there, you cannot lie in that group. Someone starts talking, they're like, no, 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 no. My dad used to say, you know, the way an alcoholic's lying is if their mouth's moving. And so like you start to, you start to go there, they're like, no, you come back when you really want Jesus. I mean, I was like, I want you, Jesus. You know, like you feel the power in the room. But the leader was a guy named Chris, wild story. And Chris just started meeting with the guys every Friday morning for breakfast. They just go deeper, those deeper places. Even raised up my dad to help him lead that group. And tragically, we, we lost Chris years ago to cancer. And I was at that funeral. Our church was packed and his son got up, his six kids. And his son got up and said, My dad wasn't the perfect dad, but he was a present dad. I never forgot that phrase. He wasn't perfect, but he was present. Not just for me, but for others as well. And I know my dad tried to do his best to make disciples. If you were discipled by my dad, would you please stand up right now? I'm a pastor. 
I, when, I've, when I do funerals, I tell people, they, everybody who does funerals always wants to have people stand up in the crowd and talk. And I'm always like, don't do that. It creates the most awkward moment. They either don't talk or they talk forever. Like, this is not gonna go well. And I just cringe like, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. Until I turned around, it was like, doom, 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 doom. Men all over the room started standing up, including my dad. And my dad, just this year, told me, hey, I'm gonna relinquish leading my life group. I led for 18 years. 18 years. Some of you are not 18 yet. You're like, oh, but I led life group for a year. They didn't come back. I mean, 18 years. 18 freaking years. Wow, y'all getting that? 18 years. And he's like, I'm just gonna be the administrator now. So now he's just the administrator. Still on Friday mornings, meeting at Denny's with a group of men that Chris started 20 years ago to get together to say, how's your walk with God going? What's going on inside of you? How are we feeding others? Still making disciples and my dad walking in freedom. I talked about the prison. He actually started joining me in the prison to share. You got a limited time. What's your strategy going to be? As the band comes up, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I just want you to go back to Mark 3 in your head for a moment. You're there and you're in that synagogue. Just picture it in your head. You're in the synagogue. Jesus and his disciples walk in and Jesus walks over to that man with a withered hand and he says, stretch it out. In your mind's eye, picture that man being healed. Picture his joy. The shock and awe of the room. In the excitement, maybe people want him to start preaching and, and yet he's gonna pull away to the mountains and he looks at you and he says, I want you to come with me. You have a choice of whether you're gonna do that or not. Then you say to him, you want me? And he says, come follow me. And everything's about to change. You get a choice of whether you do that or not. But it seems like he's saying you get to be in the inner circle to see his life, to hear his voice to see his prayer times in the morning, to see how he handles conflict, to watch how he sacrifices, the generosity of his heart, the kindness on his face. You get to be right up close and personal to that. And you say, I'm in. you just to interact with Jesus right now. Because I know for most of you in the room, that's what you're saying. You're saying, yes, Jesus, I want to be so close. The dust of your feet touches me. Just tell him that. It's like a reset of your discipleship. Whether this is day one or year 20, it's a reset. You're getting to say, I will follow you.
as Jesus is about to slip away into the clouds and head on to heaven, he looks at you and he says, now go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. And I promise you, just like when I was there on earth, I'm going to be with you always. answer is absolutely we're in we're given Lord in Jesus name let's all stand to our feet